In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We'll study today chapter 3 from the first letter of St. Paul to his disciple Timothy. In this letter, in this chapter, St. Paul is highlighting the main qualifications or requirements of a bishop and also of the deacon. So we understand that not just anybody can serve in the church, but it takes certain qualifications in order to be a servant of God. And as we're going to study tonight, the qualifications are about their desire, why they desire to be a bishop or to be a deacon, their attitude, their discipline, how they are controlling themselves, their ability, are they able, for example, to teach, what is their experience? Are they novice or they have to be mature before uh, assigning them such responsibilities? What is their reputation? Not only among the believers, but also among those from outside. How they handle the mystery of faith. So all these areas these seven areas, the desire, attitude, discipline, ability, experience, reputation, and faith, will be covered in this chapter. Let's read verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So the first point St. Paul is discussing here is their desire. Why a person will accept the position of a bishop? What is the desire behind it? St. Paul says there is only one desire that is acceptable. This desire is to do the good works. So, if I accept the position of the bishop in order to be able to help others, in order to be able to uh, preach the word of God, in order to be able to establish churches, in order to be able to preach the message of salvation, then this desire is according to the will of God. And we should know that the word bishop means overseer because bishop in Greek is episcopus. And the word scope means to see, like microscope, telescope. And epi means from above. So episcopus, to see from above. So this overseer, because the pyramid of the church 
You know, the priesthood has a priest, deacon, and a bishop. And these three ranks makes like a triangle or a pyramid. So there is a deacon, priest, and from above the bishop as overseer. The deacons are responsible of the administrative things. And the priests are responsible for the spiritual affairs of the church. And both of them report to the bishop. So the bishop is the overseer of the deacons and the priests. Another important point, uh, as you remember, St. Paul concluded chapter 2 by speaking about the authority and the leadership was given to the man, not to the woman. Then he started to speak about the ranks of the church, the bishop and the deacon. So by mentioning first that the authority and the leadership is entrusted to the man, not to the woman, St. Paul disproved the priesthood of women. So this introduction was very important for St. Paul to mention that uh, women cannot be ordained in the rank of a priest or a bishop. Then St. Paul mentioned seven after he spoke about what is the desire, why a person would accept the position of the bishop, he started to mention seven qualifications or seven criteria of the bishop. And all this qualification has to do with the character itself. Sometimes we pay much attention to the education, whether he has a theological degree or not, which is important. But according to St. Paul, the character is more important. What are these seven uh, criteria? A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. So these are seven criteria. Let us go over them one by one. Blameless. Blameless doesn't mean sinless because no one is without sin. But blameless means that nobody can seize something against him to make a charge against him. That's what blameless means. One who affords nothing upon which an adversary might seize in order to make a charge against him. Then he said, the husband of one wife. Does this mean that the bishop must be married? As you know that St. Paul himself was not married. And Timothy, also the bishop of Ephesus, was not married. So St. Paul here is not making a requirement that the bishop should be married. But here he was saying 
if we are going to choose a bishop from those who are married, then we cannot choose a bishop from those who married more than one time. So, St. Paul excluded the polygamist from the position of the bishop. And when I speak about the polygamist, I mean either the parallel form of polygamy or the serial form of polygamy. What do I mean the parallel? The parallel means they have more than wife at the same time. And the serial form means after his wife passed away, he married another wife, and the third, after this passed away, a third one, etc. That's the serial form. So, whether a person was married to more than one, one wife at the same time, or more than uh, one wife in his life, both of them can, cannot become bishop. You may ask, does this mean that Christianity approves polygamy, but the polygamist cannot become bishops? No, Christianity does not approve polygamists. But because St. Paul wrote this letter in the early centuries of Christianity, there are many pagans who converted to Christianity. And these pagans were polygamists. So they are not qualified. And definitely, uh, when they converted to Christianity, the church required them to stick with one wife. But they cannot become bishops because they married more than one wife. So number one, he should be blameless. Number two, a husband of one wife. Number three, temperate. Temperate means to abstain from wine to abstain from wine. Because, as we're going to mention in, in verse 3, drinking can change the character of the person. The person can become unreasonable, or his judgment can be full of error. That's why the bishop, who is managing and supervising and overseeing the Church of God, should be temperate, and not given to wine. So he has to abstain from drinking wine. Number four, to be sober-minded, which means to be of a sound mind, seen in his senses, controlling, was able to control his own desires and impulses. Again, this is a high position in the church and the person who is interested with this ministry has to be of sound mind because he will make judgment in the church of God. After this, number five, he said to be of good behavior. To be of good behavior. Good behavior means what? means to conform to the standards of conduct and good taste. Like, the word good behavior here 
is the same Greek word that St. Paul used in the last chapter, chapter 2, when St. Paul advised women to dress modestly. So the bishop here should conform to the standards of conduct and good taste. Number six, hospitable. Hospitable means to be a friend of stranger. This character means he has to be generous. One of the main responsibilities of the bishops is to take care of the orphans and widows. So if he's not uh, generous and he is not a friend of strangers, he cannot be qualified to this position. And lastly, he said, able to teach, able to teach. Able to teach means he is skillful in teaching, he is knowledgeable about the sound doctrines of the church. As overseer, he will oversee the teachers. That's why he himself should be skilled in teaching. So these are the seven uh, qualifications of the bishop. Blameless, a husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Then in verse 3, as if St. Paul was repeating some qualifications again, but actually he was emphasizing some positive characters should be in the bishop. He said, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. I want you to, to see the first three criteria and compare them with the last three criteria. As if St. Paul was saying, not given to wine, but gentle, not violent, but also not quarrelsome, not greedy for money, and also not covetous. So each one of these, the first, uh, of these first three criteria correspond to the second three criteria. Not given to wine, but gentle. As I told you, a person who drinks, his character can be changed. He can become unreasonable. He can become uh, harsh. That's why St. Paul said the bishop shouldn't be given to wine, but he should be gentle, he should be reasonable, he should be equitable, he should be fair-minded. Then he said not violent. Usually violence appears with the opposing, the, uh, the, those who are opposing my ideas or my thoughts, how I am dealing with them. A violent person will deal with those who oppose him harshly, and he can fight with them, quarrel with them. That's why St. Paul said 
he shouldn't be violent nor quarrelsome, but he should uh, be calm, quiet, gentle. And the third point, not greedy for money. If a person has ambition, ambition to accumulate unnecessary resources to himself, that's greed. Especially now, the bishops are taken from among the monks. And the monks uh, took the vow of poverty. So the bishop should keep the vow of poverty. Even after he becomes a bishop, he shouldn't uh, forget the vow of poverty that he uh, took on the day of his monasticism. And usually greed uh, develops in the heart covetousness. A greedy person is also a covetous person, envious person. But the bishop should be away from the love of money, from covetousness, and from greed. But instead, he should be generous, generous person. Verse 4, another important point about the bishop, he said, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? In the first centuries, before the monasticism, the bishops were taken from among married people. But from the time of uh, Nicene Council, there was a decision in this council that the bishop should be celibate and taken from the monks. That's why St. Paul is saying the bishop will be in charge of the church of God. So he is like a manager. So if he does not know how to manage his own household, if he doesn't know how to rule his own house, can, how can I entrust him with the house of God? If he fails in ruling his own house, then we shouldn't trust him with the house of God. And he said that the children, his children, should be submissive and reverent. As he said, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Usually, in parenting, we should keep the balance between control and love. When the parents keep the hierarchy in the family and control their children with love, 
the children will learn how to be submissive to the authority. And this will be indication that this man was successful in uh, ruling his own house. If his children are submissive to the authority. But control without love can create rebellion children. That's why the balance between control and love is very important. The love here will make the children reverent, respectable, because the children will be satisfied, their emotions will be satisfied. And when they submit, they submit not out of fear, but out of love. They submit not out of weakness, but out of strength. That's why they will be submissive, but with all reverence. So when we see children submissive with all reverence, definitely we can say that the parents performed their uh, duty well. But just here, I want to uh, emphasize something that St. Paul is referring to a appropriate effort rather than the actual achievement. What do I mean by this? If there are children who are not submissive, does this mean that the parents didn't do uh, their job well? Not necessarily. Samuel was a priest appointed by God and God testified for Samuel the prophet. But his children were not submissive. And actually, God himself, he spoke about his children that they were not submissive. We read in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2, God was speaking, I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. Can, can we blame God here and say that God doesn't know how to rule his people? Definitely not. So when St. Paul spoke about rules his house well, he's speaking about he did the appropriate effort, not necessarily the achievement, because many times we do the effort, but we cannot uh, achieve the result. And we have many examples in the Bible about good parents that their children were not submissive with or reverence. So when we examine a person, whether he is qualified to the degree of priesthood or not, we should evaluate the effort, not necessarily the achievement. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care 
of the church of God. Then Numbers, verse 6, he said, Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And St. Paul here is speaking about their level of maturity as Christian. A novice can be either a man who is recently converted to Christianity or a person who is immature spiritually. And both of them are not qualified to be in the rank of the priesthood. Unfortunately, many times we start to give responsibility and assignments, especially the teaching assignment to those who are novice. Many converts who converted to Christianity just recently, we give them responsibility to teach. This is against the teaching of St. Paul. St. Paul made it very clearly that a novice shouldn't take the responsibility of the priesthood or the teaching in the church. Why? St. Paul said, lest being puffed up with pride. Usually, a person who did not learn under submission, but too soon elevated to the position of authority, this person will fall into pride. He has first to learn how to be submissive and to acquire this humble spirit. Then, when we assign him to a position of authority, he will not fall into pride. The same applies for Sunday school servants. It is very important before assigning a youth class and giving him authority, he has to learn in submission. That's why attending the pre-servants classes is very important. Not only to learn, because the knowledge are available, they can read and they can have the knowledge. But participating and attending the class will give them the spirit of submission. And if they didn't learn in submission, then they will fall into pride if you just assign them uh, uh, authority or position of leadership. And St. Paul said, they will fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Because why the devil was condemned? Because of the pride. So, if a novice is assigned a position of authority, then he fell into pride, 
he will face the same judgment and the same condemnation as the devil because the devil was condemned because of his pride. I hope we understand the importance of preparing our youth before start serving in the church. Many times we have many arguments about why they should attend the pre-servant class, why they should attend the servants' conferences. They know their knowledge already. Why you don't assign them uh, classes? Why you don't let them serve? If, there's, if they serve prematurely, they will fall into pride and they will face the same condemnation as the devil. That's why it's very important first to learn in submission, to learn how to submit to the authority, to acquire this humble spirit. That's why the Lord trained the disciples for three years before giving them the responsibility of ministry. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. St. Paul is saying, not only important to have good reputation among the Christians and the believers, but also he, ha he should have a good reputation among the non-Christians. And here we have the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had good reputation even among the non-believers. Pontius Pilate, after the trial, he testified that the Lord Jesus Christ is innocent. And he washed his hand from his blood. So he testified that the Lord was innocent. If we assign people who don't have good reputation among the non-Christian to a place of authority, they will face reproach. As St. Paul said, he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The non-Christian and the non-believer will reproach not only the person but the Holy Church because of the bad reputation. And this will be like a trap by the devil to attack the church. Because many people will be offended in the hierarchy of the church and will be offended in Christianity. And this can be an obstacle for the non-believers to be believers or to accept the faith. That's why he said, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So, St. Paul, as I said in the beginning, he covered in these seven verses the desire should be good works, the attitude 
He should be like hospitable, temperate, not violent. The discipline, he should be drinking wine. He should demonstrate self-control. He should have good behavior. The ability, he should be able to teach. The experience, not novice, but spiritually mature. His reputation, he should have good reputation, not only among the Christian, but among the non-Christian. And his faith, he should apply what he preaches. Starting from verse 8, he starts to speak about the rank of deaconate. The rank of deaconate. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not given too much wine, not greedy for money. The word deacon means a, a, a servant. And as we read in Acts chapter 6, the apostle said it is not right to uh, forsake the spiritual affairs of the church and just keep ourselves busy with uh, administrative manners. That's why they assigned seven deacons. We read in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, they said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So as I told you, the, uh, the bishop oversees the priest and the deacon, and the deacon's main responsibility is uh, to uh, watch over the administrative issues of the church. What are the criteria of the deacon? Number one, he said, Reverent. Reverent means honored. Honored and respected. Why? Because of their deeds and also because of their character. Because of their deeds and character. When they chose the seven deacons, all of them were respected among the people and honored. Then he said, not double-tongued. Double tongue means to say one thing with one person and another thing with another person. And when you give two double, two contradicting messages, usually the intention here is to deceive others. That's why you say to this person one thing and to another person one thing. A person who is double tongued cannot be a servant of God. Then 
he said not given too much wine, not greedy for money. The, the same uh, criteria or qualification of the bishop also. He said about the bishop, he shouldn't be given to wine, not greedy. In the same way, the deacon shouldn't be given to wine, also not greedy. Verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. What does it mean, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience? As we mentioned in chapter 1, two weeks ago, we said there is a strict conscience, a loose conscience, and a pure conscience. A strict conscience, when I see the things that are not sinful, sinful. The loose conscience, when I see things that are not sinful, uh, sorry, that are sinful, not sinful. But the pure conscience is to have the ability to discern between good and evil, to see things as God sees them. So the deacon should hold the mystery of faith. What, is that? what does it mean, the mystery of faith? Christianity is a mystery, the mystery of salvation, the mystery of incarnation of the Son of God, the mystery of the cross. So the Christian faith is a mystery revealed. So this mystery that was revealed, they have to hold it with a pure conscience, not with a strict conscience, not with a loose conscience. Verse 10, but let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Again, St. Paul emphasizing the importance of uh, being tested before giving them this responsibility. Why? If we appoint somebody in any service who is not qualified, he will cause a lot of trouble. That's why it's very important to examine the person first before assigning him any responsibility. And if they, were, if they are found to be blameless, then we can assign them the responsibility. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. As St. Paul with the bishop, he looked at the whole family of the bishop, because as I told you, the bishop at the time uh, was chosen from among married people. Again, St. Paul here is looking at the family of the deacon. He's not looking at the person himself, but his family. That's why in verse 11, he said, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful on all things. If you have a good servant, but his wife 
or his children are not godly, they can cause a lot of problem. That's why St. Paul usually, he observes and examines the whole family. And for the deacon's wife, he said she should be reverent, not a slanderer, temperate, faithful in all things. Reverent means she should be honorable. She should be honored and also respected by the community of the believers. Not slanderer means she must not be prone to falsely accusing others. Slanderer means to falsely accuse others. And if the deacon's wife is a slanderer, so she will accuse all the believers in the church, and this can cause a lot of trouble and division in the church. Also, she should be temperate, which means she must, she must not develop fleshly habits as in the regular comp uh, consumption of wine. She should be temperate, not drinking, abstaining from drinking wine. Faithful in all things, she must be trustworthy in all things. And I think these four criteria, I advise our young men who are thinking about, about marriage to look for girls with these four criteria. A girl that's reverent, temperate, not slanderer, and also faithful in all things. This will be a godly bride and will, will help you to have a godly uh, marriage life. Verse 12, he said, Let deacons be the husbands of one wife. Again, the same rule with the bishop. He is emphasizing again here against polygamy. Whether it is parallel polygamy or serial polygamy, as I explained. Ruling their children and their own houses well. Many parents nowadays complain that they don't have any authority over their children or having less authority over their children. And I wonder why. Again, parents should exercise their rule as parents with control and love. And when they keep the balance between control and love, they will be able to raise their children in the fear of God. And their children will be submissive and reverent. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. St. Paul in this verse speaking about accountability and responsibility. 
So he's saying, those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing. This reminds me with St. Stephen, who was assigned the position of the deacon, and how the uh, book of Acts testified about both of them that they uh, did their ministry uh, in a way pleasing God. As we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Syrians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So, those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing. Also, they will obtain great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Their confidence in Christ will be uh, strong, and also they can preach the word of God with boldness. Verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. Although St. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, but he is saying that he wants to come and see him in person. So here I can say St. Paul emphasizing the importance of face-to-face -face ministry. Unfortunately, nowadays, with the emails and text message, sometimes we, we try to replace face-to-face -face ministry by other way of communication. But let me just read with you some verses from St. Paul and also from St. John to emphasize the importance of communicating in person. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, St. Paul says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. St. John, in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 12. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. In the third letter, verses 13 and 14, I had many things to write, but I don't wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly 
and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you, greet the friends by name. In all these verses and many others, face-to-face -face ministry is important. So you cannot just do visitation if you are a Sunday school servant. You cannot do visitation by phone or by email or text message. No, you have to go and meet the person face-to-face. -face. Even God, after was communicating to us, with the prophets, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us in order to see him face to face. So this verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, show us the importance of face to face ministry. Verse 15, but if I am delayed, I write so, I write, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. So St. Paul is saying, I want to come and see you and talk to you about your ministry as a bishop. But I am concerned that I may be delayed. That's why I write to you right now, in order to know, as a bishop of Ephesus, how to conduct yourself in the house of God. This shows us the faithfulness of St. Paul as an apostle. He is training, he is instructing his disciple Timothy in his ministry as a bishop. He is training him in order to do his uh, ministry well. We as priests, we as Sunday school coordinators, we as parents, it is our responsibility to train our children and our classes how to serve God well as St. Paul was doing with Timothy. And then St. Paul started to describe the church of God. He told him, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. So the first description of the church, it is the house of God, the place where God dwells. You can tell me about God dwells everywhere. Yes, that's right. But the church is a place that is separated from the rest of the world in order to be sanctified in order to be dedicated, in order to be a holy place where God dwells. So the first description of the church, it is the house of the living God. And if the church is the house of the living God, then those who will live in the church will also be alive like God, their father. Then he gave another description of the church, which is very, very beautiful. He said, the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and ground of the truth. In this description, St. Paul saying that the truth like a building. And this building 
has foundation and has pillar and if you remove the foundation what could happen to the building it will collapse if you remove the pillar again the building will collapse so the truth is like a building and what is the ground what is the foundation of the truth and what is the pillar of the truth it is the church so the church of God protects the truth the church of God keeps the truth and if we take the church away the truth will be collapsed which means I cannot understand the truth outside the church the, the problem of the many denominations right now they don't depend on the church in understanding the Bible but they depend on their private interpretation of the Bible that's why although all of us who are using the same version of the Bible the same text but we have many understanding of the truth in the Bible why we have many understanding because we rely on the private interpretation that's what we call liberal theology but the faith the truth that was given by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle and then was handed to us through the church fathers that is the truth that is the truth that the church kept for us over the generations and that's why if we remove that the church this truth will be uh, disfigured in our minds but when we go to the church we will understand the truth because the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth this truth that the church kept for us is the truth about the mystery of faith and what is the mystery of faith as I told you it is the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God it is the mystery of salvation it is the mystery of the cross which also is the mystery of our godliness how to become godly because God became man in order to justify us in order to save us in order to make us godly so this truth is the mystery of godliness and in verse 16 St. Paul said and without controversy without controversy great is the mystery of godliness he's saying this truth that the church kept and protected this truth is great because this truth sanctify us give us godliness but what is this truth St. Paul summarized in six points and each two point correspond to each other as I will explain the first two point he said great is the mystery of godliness number one God was manifested in the flesh 
justified in the spirit. So I want here to compare between manifested, justified, flesh and spirit. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. So the first two points about the mystery of, of godliness, this truth, God, the Logos, the second hypostasis in the Holy Trinity, became man, appeared in the flesh. He took flesh and became man in order to sanctify us. But lest you think that he is man, not God incarnate, St. Paul said he is justified in spirit. Justified in spirit means he was proved to be divine in his spirit. In his essence, he is God. How he was justified to be divine? Justified means to be proved that he is divine in his spirit. He was justified by his words, by his works, by the Father testimony in the baptism and in the transfiguration, by his uh, resurrection. So God, who is manifested in the flesh, also was proven to us that he is God in his essence, in spirit. That's why Jesus Christ is God-man. He's a perfect man and a perfect divine. And these two natures are united together without mingling, without confusion, and without alteration. Then he said, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles. Seen by angels. As St. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, about the mystery of salvation, things which angels desire to look into. St. John Chrysostom said that angels did not see the Son of God before his incarnation. Angels saw the Son of God with us, not having seen him before. Because they cover their faces. That's why we say in the hymn Be'oik that you learned, the cherubim and the seraphim stand around you, but they cannot behold you. But we can see you every day on the altar. So, when God was manifested in the flesh, he was seen by the angels. He was seen by the angels. And in the same time, he was preached among the Gentiles. So, what angels came to know by seeing, the Gentiles also learned by preaching. The mystery of, of godliness, that God now revealed this mystery to the angels and appointed the angels to be servant of this mystery of salvation. And this mystery of salvation now is preached among the Gentiles. The Gentiles can be the non-Jewish uh, people 
or the Gentiles can be here all the nations including the Jews so this mystery was preached to everybody was preached to everybody this mystery was seen by the angels and also by the nations so now both the heavenly and the earthly are testifying for the mystery of salvation the great mystery of godliness the last two points about this mystery of godliness believed on in the world received up in glory when the apostle preached the Lord Jesus Christ the world that was full of corruption received Christ and believed on him in the same way heaven that's full of glory received the Son of God when he ascended after he finished his ministry on earth so here see the, the, the comparison the world that was full of corruption received the Son of God and believed on him and heaven that's full of glory received the Son of God when he ascended into heaven so his reception in heaven answers to his reception on earth by being believed on so again to summarize this mystery of godliness as St. Paul spoke about it God manifested in the flesh and he was justified to be divine in the spirit this mystery is seen by the angels and in the same time preached among the Gentiles and what was the response the response that people believed on him accepted him received him the world that's full of corruption now accepted the Lord Jesus Christ to sanctify the world and heaven that's full of glory received the Son of God so I, again these are steps the first step God manifests in the flesh and this God who is manifested in the flesh proved to be divine in spirit second step now he is preached preached to the nations and also seen by the angels the third step what is the reaction to this preaching the people believed on him in the world and also was received up in glory so in this chapter St. Paul elaborated on the qualification of the bishop on the qualification of the deacon and then he concluded the chapter by describing the church as the house of the living God as the pillar and ground of the truth then he spoke about the mystery of godliness glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.